0: Hey, good evening, we got kind of quiet, good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1st John chapter 4, 1st John 4, let's uh, pick it up in verse 7, where John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's a major theme in John's first epistle. And uh, let me just say this, the expression that God is love (laughs) has been used by many, you know, who like to quote the Bible when it suits their purposes, often to justify their sin or the sin of somebody else couple examples from the presidential race, we had Senator Cory Booker quote Micah to defend uh, LGBTQ rights. Uh, of course, Mayor Pete was not going to be denied, so he quoted the Bible and told us that the Bible says life begins with breath, which means it's okay to abort a child, a fetus, because they're not really living yet until they're born and take their first breath. So we thank God for these theologians running for president. Um, It's amazing. But that's nothing new, all right, nothing new. Back in the days of the hippie movement in the 1960s and 70s, uh, there were a lot of young people who weren't Christians uh, who liked to write God is love on banners and signs and then use that expression to justify what they called free love, free love. But actually, what they called love was, in reality, nothing more than lust acted out through sexual immorality. And by the way, it was anything but free. Anything but free. It uh, cost these young people more than they could ever have realized. Uh, Their kind of love, quote-unquote, was um, sensual. Uh, lust often is really what it was. It was eros, not agape. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But all this free expression of love, and I guess they dragged God into it by quoting First John 4, 8, that God is love. And so when you have sex with people, you are loving them, you know. And as I just, I just said, it cost these young people quite a bit. It wasn't free at all. It cost them their innocence and made many of the, them children parents or even murderers if they aborted their children uh cost them their freedom as the devil um used all this quote-unquote quote free love to uh, put them into bondage to sexual sin and it cost many of them their very lives as it paved the way for aids and other stds that still plague us today took some of those many of those young people's lives um through sexual um, sin, but STDs and so on. Look, when the Bible talks about Christian love, and that's what John's encouraging us as Christians to love others, of course he's talking about God's love working through us. A very important point. Uh, He's not talking about the love of the world. The love of the world is often selfish and sensual. Uh, But the love that John's talking about is genuine, It's real love because it comes from God himself who is himself, love doesn't say he has a lot of love the bible says he is love in fact the beginning of first john chapter 4 verse 10 where it says in this is love can be translated in this way is seen true love of course if god's love is called the true love then all other forms of love are false love but let me clarify let me clarify what i'm saying First of all, let me say this, that in the Greek language, which is the language the New Testament was written in, Koine Greek, there are four words for love, although only two of them actually appear in the New Testament. The Greeks, first of all, had the word eros. We get the English words erotic and erogenous from that Greek word. This is a word that better represents the idea of lust and is really more about the biological act of sex than it is about love. That word does not occur in the New Testament, eros. The second Greek word for love uh, that they had was the word storge. And that spoke of family love, love uh, of a mother for her children, very special kind of a love. But uh, that word doesn't appear in the New Testament uh, either. The third word the Greeks had for love, phileo, which uh, is a word that means affection, friendship, brotherly love. The idea is reciprocal love, friendship love. Uh, i love you because you love me we have this friendship we're close we're we're buddies we're bros okay uh reciprocal love fellow, okay and then finally there is the word agape which christians we're all familiar with and uh, this is a greek word that represents a powerful all-consuming kind of love now be careful be careful because i have heard pastors say that the Greek language didn't have a word for God's love. So they had to invent one. And they invented the word agape to use, to represent God's love, and it was used exclusively for God's love in the New Testament. That's not true. Jesus said in Luke 11:43, 43, and there's other examples. But Jesus said in Luke 11:43, 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love agapao the verb form of agape you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces how does that you know we're so used to thinking of agape love as god's love but you have to think of it as an all-consuming kind of love and who it emanates from and where their heart is at determines that this all-consuming love is going to be godly or very selfish Of course, with the Pharisees, it was a selfish kind of love. They were consumed by a love of prestige and the praise and recognition of men. And that's why uh, Jesus said they agape, the chief seats in the synagogues, and the greetings in the marketplaces where people would fall all over them with praise. Oh, Rabbi, my great one, my great one. They loved that. It was an all-consuming love for them. But it is true. All right. That by far the most common use of the word agape in the New Testament is connected to God's love, so much so that we we come to almost think of it exclusively connected to God. But now you realize it's not always the case. All right. But it is an all-consuming love, and because that's God's love, but it's of course when God God's all-consuming love is never selfish. Uh, so of course we come to think of agape love is an all-consuming, unconditional, selfless kind of a love. That's the love that characterizes God. Of course, the verse that we're all familiar with that probably best defines that or represents that is John 3, 16, for God so loved, agape the world that he gave. Agape love is giving when it's connected to God. It's a giving love, sacrificial love. God so loved this world, saw the predicament we were in, How that we had exercised our free will in rebellion. The human race fell. We were destined to spend eternity in hell and there was nothing we could do about it. So God looked. He saw. He loved. He acted. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in Jesus would not have to perish in hell but have everlasting life. And so again, God's love is all-consuming. It's unconditional love. That love's freely regardless of how that love is returned if returned at all, which is different from human love, which is reciprocal, you know. People say, I love you because you love me. It's reciprocal, human love, and often conditional. But I only love you when you treat me right. That's human love, okay? God's love is not like human love. God's love, again, is unconditional, universal, non-discriminating. As the scriptures say, God so loves the world, and he is no respecter of persons. He loves everybody, okay? Um, That's his nature. Uh, This is what I meant when I said that God's love, agape, sacrificial love, is true, and all other forms of love are false. I'm talking about what is true to God's nature, okay? Okay? I'm not saying that uh, family love, friendship love are illegitimate forms of love. No, of course not. They are legitimate forms of love because they come from God. uh, As a part of our human nature, God gave us this kind of love when he created us and he first made man. But, uh, you know, friendship love, family love, as precious as those things can be, um, they in and of themselves are not the love the Bible speaks of that truly characterizes God's nature, which is agape love as we define it Is a selfless, all-consuming, unconditional kind of love. Look, human love is uh, limited, and it can diminish over time. Unfortunately, many couples who stood before God and family and pledged their love to each other for better or for worse for the rest of their lives till death do they part, um, well, they didn't keep that promise. Uh, Many couples, unfortunately, in our society have experienced Uh, in their marriage, where their love has diminished over time. In some cases, died altogether. But God's love, agape, never diminishes because God is the source of this love, and God never diminishes, right? Hebrews 13, verse 8, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad when you read that? I mean, in a world of shifting sand, where everybody builds uh, their lives on materialism, or pleasure, or whatever. It's all shifting sand, you know? One minute they could be riding high, you know? And they're doing extremely well. They're wealthy. They have everything life can offer. But before you know it, it could all come crashing down. When you build your life on Jesus, the rock, it's stable. Now, that doesn't mean God's promising us that we're going to have all kinds of material things. And I remember when we started the church 40 years ago. For the first year and a half, I worked a full-time job plus pastoring. And it was amazing what God did. He, um, we, we had to work. It was, overtime was mandatory, okay? And Sundays were often, okay? Uh, I worked for an oil company. We received shipments of... Uh, of gasoline jet fuel diesel fuel from the refinery and we had to be there to make sure it got into the right tanks and the make sure the tank didn't overflow and divert uh from one tank to another if there was more product coming in than one tank could hold and, and and so on so uh that was just part the job and you had to work overtime you couldn't you know, reject it okay and uh, i knew that was going to be a problem <laughs> starting at church sunday's is pretty important when we started the church, the overtime, drive up, the overtime dried up instantly. I didn't work a Sunday for a year and a half. And then the company decided it was going to uh, try to streamline, so they offered employees a, um, a you know a layoff. You if you went ahead and accepted uh, a severance package, then you could uh, you could uh, basically retire, or quit, uh, and then they would pay you for a couple of years. They break up the severance package into. Payments for a couple of years. Anyways, um, the night before I had to give them um, a resp- uh, you know an answer. Cindy and I fasted, and we went into different parts of the house to pray, and uh, by ourselves, you know. And I remember saying to the Lord, "Lord, I will be happy to sell the house if that's what it takes to serve you full time. I know there's not going to be a lot of money in it." That wasn't the reason I was doing it. And um, I said, but Lord, right now I couldn't rent an apartment for what I'm paying for a mortgage, okay, because I got, what, our house at a good time, right? And um, I was concerned about financially making it. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly and said, Phil, if you're asking me to guarantee you I'm going to keep you at a certain level of income, I'm not going to do that. I will promise you, though, I will always take care of your needs. I said, Lord, that's good enough for me. I know a sinner said, Amen. Cindy came out of the bedroom. She said, Honey, here's what... The, same thing. Same thing. You know, God takes care of us, you know. Um, he has never ceased to take care of us. His love has been overwhelming. How he has provided, how he has watched over us. When things look pretty, pretty difficult at times, uh, he was always there. He always made a way. And uh, so, you know, God's love is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm so thankful that after 40 years of ministry, I've never had to worry one day that maybe God would stop loving me. Maybe God would not come through on the promises he gave to me in his word. We never have to worry about that, all right? But human love is is different. Not not all forms of human love are bad, but of course, human love is rooted in self, oftentimes. And, uh, you know, a lot of people base their love on Hollywood's definition of love. I love you because of the way you make me feel. And if the day should ever come when you stop making me feel good about myself, like, you know, when I go out on the town and I got you, you know, um, on my arm and people stop, you know, ooing and aahing and making me feel good, uh, you know, I'll find somebody else. That's the world's love. It's selfish, it's self-oriented, and so on. Uh, and as such, human love loves its own, those that are closest to it. God's love loves, uh, his love loves even his enemies. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. You all know this, but we're here. It's good to kind of just review. Matthew 5, starting with verse 44, I'll read it out of the NLT 2nd edition. Jesus said, but I say, love your enemies. Verse 45, in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. So God loves those who hate him. He treats them kindly. Of course, if you're living in an agrarian society, agricultural society, well, obviously, sunshine and rain are very important. God doesn't say, well, you don't love me. I'm going to withhold the sunshine from your fields or the rain from your crops. No. I mean, God loves everybody, those that love him back, and those that don't because his nature is to love. And God's love doesn't discriminate. It doesn't say, I'm going to love you, but not you. He loves everyone and is no respecter of persons. In fact, one of the great things you can always quote to yourself, one of the verses that anytime the devil starts getting you to think God doesn't love you, just remember what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners implies we were at enmity with God. We were the enemies of God. He wasn't our enemy. And when Jesus died, it satisfied the righteousness of God and allowed God to open his hands, his arms to us and tell us, Come, I want you to be my children. Now, of course, we still with our backs to God and our arms folded for many years saying, I'm not going to come to you. I have too many things I want to do with my life still. And then God let life beat itself like the prodigal. You know, uh, life can can kick the snut out of you. You know, you you talk. God says, "Okay, you think you know best what better than me? What's best for your life? Go ahead." That's the prodigal. You know, remember the prodigal son? He finally wound up slopping pigs. The worst thing a, a job a Jew could ever do. Pigs were the ultimate defiled animals. He says he came to his senses right? Sometimes God gives us enough rope to hang ourselves uh, until we realize, you know what, maybe God's got a better way. Uh, Maybe I need God, you know, which of course we do. And so Jesus, you know, commands, and not just in Matthew 5, but other places, Jesus commands his followers to love even our enemies. And people say, well, I don't get that. How can I love my enemies? I have no feelings of love for my enemies. But agape love isn't about feelings. It's about actions. It's about meeting needs. Your enemy hungers, give him something to eat. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll pour coals of fire on his head. And the idea is you'll bring him to repentance. And and win a brother or sister, you know. Of course, when you start loving people sacrificially, even your enemies, by just giving, helping, they have a need, the feelings will come. We tend to put feelings before the actions. And God says that's backward. You put the actions first and the feelings will come. Especially this is true for other Christians, though, right? We're to love our enemies, great. But the Bible has a lot to say about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ first and foremost. But once again, as we have talked about this in our studies in 1 John, we can't manufacture God's love. Agape is not something we can imitate or, or, you know, manufacture. It has to come from God. And the only way we can have agape love in our hearts is if God puts it there. And that only happens when the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. And he only moves in when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then Romans 5, 5 says he pours God's love into our hearts. It's there for us to use. Now, here's an interesting thing about God's love. You think, oh, wow, this I never thought about this. Remember what Jesus said that during the tribulation period, the love of many would grow cold? You know what the word love is sir? Agape. What are you saying? Well, I have to believe that since agape love only comes from God and only fills the hearts of true believers, what Jesus is telling us that in the tribulation period, things will get so rough for those believers that even many of them will stop showing God's love. We can restrict the flow of God's love through our lives. It's there. We don't have to draw from it. We don't have to share it. And I tell you what, when we walk away from God and start backsliding, the flow of God's love begins to dry up because we revert back to our self-love and putting ourselves first. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, there is a false love And this kind of love God must reject. Love that is born out of the very essence of God must be spiritual and holy because God is spirit and God is light. In Him is no darkness. He's holy. This true love is, listen, poured out within our hearts through His Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, Romans 5, verse 5. Love, therefore, is a valid test of true Christian faith. And that's what John's using it. Remember, he's talking about, look, uh, how do you know you're really saved, how do you know you're a child of God, is God's love in your heart, is it there, because if it's there, you're saved, because it can't be there if you're not saved, God has to pour it into your heart, and that happens when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside, all right, so words be said, you know, um, love therefore is a valid test of true Christian faith, since God is love, and we have claimed a personal relationship with God, we must of necessity reveal his love in how we live. A child of God has been born of God, and therefore he or she shares God's divine nature. Since God is love, Christians ought to then love one another. The logic is unanswerable, End quote. It's irrefutable, right? And this is what John is saying. Look, he's, you know, John's writing to people that were attending churches. And John was a pastor. Yeah, an apostle, but a pastor. And he knew, as I know, in any good evangelical church, I'm not talking about, you know, denominational dead churches now. I'm talking about good, solid, Bible-teaching evangelical churches. You're going to have a whole bunch of true believers, and you're going to have some people who are not really saved. Now, they might think they are, um, you know, uh, God knows their heart, okay. And so John is wanting to minister to the believers, but challenge the um, counterfeit Christians, if I can put it that way, by saying, look, I want you all to go to heaven. And the only way you're going to go to heaven is if you're a true believer. And the evidence of that is is God's love in your heart, you know. If it is, you're saved. But test yourself. And John's not the only one to challenge believers to test themselves. Peter challenged us. Paul challenged us. The Lord Jesus challenged us to make sure you are really genuinely saved because you don't want to be a part of the scene that Jesus describes in Matthew 7 where people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment. I mean... (laughs) Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do all kinds of incredible uh, wonders in your name? You're telling us we're not saved? I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. There's a lot of people who go to church who really think they're saved. And I don't know their heart, only God does. But like John, there are things to look for, right? There's fruit. We have to be honest with ourselves and say, you know, am I really born again? Or am I playing games here? This is the time to sort that out right now. You can't wait till you stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you. Oh, well, well, can I accept you now, Lord? Not too late. Today is the day of salvation. So this is important. All right. Verse 9, 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Now, John's talking about God's love and how God demonstrated his love. What he's going for is watch how God demonstrated his love toward us and imitate that. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, have eternal life. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you understand what John's saying? In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. What he's saying is, this is really, um, (laughs) the incredible truth is not that we love God. He's easy to love, okay? The incredible thing to think about is how he loved us. Sinners, enemies, defiled, hell-bound. And he still loved us. You have to understand the pagan mindset that John lived among these folks. In pagan cultures, they appeased the gods by sacrificing human beings. Right? Here's a message where God sacrificed himself for people you have to understand how radical that was okay i mean it was no big deal that the pagans loved their gods but their gods didn't really love them the gods the greeks said were the greeks had millions of gods basically but they also the the gods were apathia apathetic they didn't care about people But God so loved the world, John. Is this what you're telling me the pagans would say? Your God so loved the world that he died for people? Wow. And this is what John's saying. This is love. This this is what blows our mind. Not that we love God, but that God loves us. And, And proved it by dying for us. Sent his son to be the propitiation. Hang on to that word. For our sins. Beloved, verse 11. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, it starts with the Christian family. It starts with our family in Christ. I mean, if we can't even nail that down, how are we going to love our enemies? Or the world? Of course, I hear all throughout this epistle something that must have really impacted John. Well, yes, it did, and it should have. Something that Jesus said the night before the cross in the upper room. You all know, we've read it about half a dozen times in the course of this study. But John 13, verses 34 and 5. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friend. A new commandment, I'm quoting chapter 15. A new commandment, this is the one, John 13, 34 and 5. A new commandment I give to you, that you love, agape, one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have, the Greek as fervent, love for one another. Now that really impacted John, I'm sure the others as well. But we're reading his epistle, and it comes through all throughout this epistle. How that John understood what Jesus was saying, and how Jesus took... Well, we've talked about this in the law of God, in the Moses, law of Moses, law of God through Moses, 613 commandments, 365 were negative, thou shalt not, thou shalt not commit adultery or murder, you know, 365, one for every day of the year, pretty much, thou shalt not, 248 were positive, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and so on, okay? Okay. Of course, the running debate was among the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, which was the greatest of the commandments? Which was the This was a, you know, there are Christians today that will spend hours in coffee shops around America arguing doctrine when they could be out sharing the gospel. Now, I used to love to argue doctrine when I was a young Christian, you know. I mean, you know, that was, you know, how I showed everybody how much I knew. Now, I I don't even... If a Christian wants to argue doctrine, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I'd rather be focusing on what we have in common, Jesus Christ. Let's focus on what we have that brings us together, not what divides us. But, um... I wish I could remember what I was going to say. Uh... <laughs> um you know uh just that we, we we show god's love by the fact that we love each other first and foremost you know we can't even do that how are we going to begin to love the world and our enemies um but but it, john says here in verse 10 in this is love It's talking about god's love he says This is what is at the heart of God's love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's the big deal. And how did he love us? By sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We talked about this a few months ago when we were in chapter 2, but it's such an important subject. Bear with me as I review a little bit okay propitiation is a big fancy word but it has a very simple meaning let me first of all tell you this if you were to go to the dictionary and look up the word propitiation here's what you would read for the definition to appease someone who is angry to appease someone who is angry we said when we studied chapter 2 verse 2 if you apply that definition to the concept of biblical redemption, it means that Jesus died on Calvary's cross, listen, to appease an angry, red eyed, fire breathing God who was just so furious he was ready to wipe everybody out. And Jesus quickly, you know, ran to the cross and died to appease this angry God, the Father. That's not the God of the Bible. Some people's concept of God is like that, but that's not the God. You know, that's not what we read in the Scriptures, in the Gospels. Not a a proper picture of salvation, really. It's true God hates sin because He is absolutely, infinitely holy and righteous. He has to hate sin. But it's also true that God loves sinners. Again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? God so loves the world. It's not that God hates the world or is angry towards the people of the world. He loves the world of sinners. Is He angry with sin? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can have a God who hates sin and loves sinners. Some people have a trouble with that balance. We we you know the Bible teaches that God hates sin, but loves sinners. Okay, proved it by sending His Son to die for sinners, um, on Calvary's cross to save fallen humankind, save us from hell. In our small group yet last night. Somebody said that when somebody first uh, when somebody first witnessed to her about how God sent His Son to save us, she said, "Save us from what?" We have we better be careful we don't assume, right? Because we're so used to throwing these terms around, sometimes we don't realize people don't know what we're talking about. True story. Uh, one of our Calvary pastors gave a message, an evangelistic message, one Sunday. As he's standing by the door, where his people were filing out, this this lady, this older woman, who came for the first time, first Sunday there at the church, she said, "Pastor, that was really a great sermon. Can I just ask you one question?" He said, "Yes. What does the word evangelism mean?" Okay. I think it was Francis Francis Schaeffer who said years ago, "We're living in a time we can no longer say the word God and expect that people will really understand." what we're talking about, or what God we're talking about. We're living in a post-Christian era. And often because we hang with each other and we bounce these things around like nothing because we're so used to these terms and phrases, sometimes we don't realize that people are so unchurched out there, what we take for granted, they have no clue. So be patient and don't assume anything. Try to explain things in a very simple way so they can understand it. God sent his son to die on the cross to, to save us from judgment, from hell. The word propitiation does not mean the appeasing of an angry God, biblically. Rather, it means, listen, the location or place where sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is satisfied. Propitiation is the place or location where sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is satisfied. All right, well, what or where is this place where our sins were forgiven and God's righteousness was satisfied? Well, the answer is not really a what or a where, it's a who. Or in other words, the place is really a person, Jesus Christ. Turn back to chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself, Jesus Christ, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or in other words, he himself is the place, drawing from the biblical definition of propitiation, he is the place where god's holy law was satisfied he is the place what does that exactly mean though well to fully understand and appreciate what john is saying and of course he's a jew and very familiar with the uh, jewish uh, law and the uh, the uh, mosaic system okay old testament system of uh, sacrifices and so on to uh, fully understand and appreciate what john is saying we need to understand how sin was atoned for, and God's righteousness was satisfied under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Back then, when a the Jew sinned, God had instructed that they were to bring their animal sacrifice. You can go back into the, uh, you know, Leviticus and uh, and uh, you know Deuteronomy, where God laid out for whatever sin you committed, there was a a sacrifice, an animal, or sometimes there was uh, maybe um, a meal offering or Uh, You know, uh, sometimes a ram or a goat or sometimes a couple of turtle doves, you know. But God had prescribed in his law, if they had sinned, what sacrifice they were to bring to him. And they would bring their sacrifice to the priest at the tabernacle later on the temple. Where the priest would then offer the sacrifice to God and listen, make atonement for their sin so that their fellowship with God could be restored again. That was the idea. Sin had severed their fellowship. My my hand is not short that I cannot say, neither is my ear heavy that I cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your God so that I won't hear your prayers any longer until, of course, the sin is atoned for. Then they were reconnected, you might say, with God. Fellowship was restored, right? And that was the idea. It was all about fellowship. It was all about being in a place where you had Uh, you had this fellowship or communion with God. Sin broke that. You didn't want to be in a place where sin had separated you from God, where you were out from the protective covering of God, where the blessings of God were no longer being poured upon you because of sin. You wanted to get right as quickly as you could get back with God, right? So every Jew knew this, okay? You sinned, you got to bring your sacrifice. Now, here's the thing, guys. Here was the problem there was always sins, listen now, that were never atoned for. Many unknown or forgotten sins that would accumulate throughout the year, okay? I mean, if you had to list every sin you committed this week, could you write them all down? I couldn't, you know, just like the Jewish people. And they knew it. They knew, well, of course, they brought sacrifices for the big stuff. But God said, if you covet, that's a sin. If you 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 speak ill of your neighbor, that was a sin. Sometimes people do things, they don't even think about it. So they knew that throughout the course of the year, there were sins that had never been atoned for. Sins that needed to be atoned for, and they felt the guilt uh, and the concern of unconfessed, unatoned for sins Uh, you know in their lives and so god dealt with that Um, god chose to establish one day a year a national day of atonement which he called yom kippur it literally means day of covering yom day kippur kippura a covering this was the national day of covering covering sins right and this was the day when all unknown, forgotten, or unatoned for sins could be covered and forgiven. A great day of liberation for the conscience. For the conscience. Read uh, Leviticus 17, 16. talks about this. The Israelites knew that they have missed, um, that whatever sins they had missed throughout the year would now be taken care of, that their slate would officially and completely be wiped clean until the next time they sinned. That was the problem with the old sacrificial system. As the writer to the Hebrews points out very, very well, the blood of goats and bulls couldn't only temporarily cover sins; couldn't take sin away. So they were always having to bring another a- a sacrifice, another animal, to cover because sin was ongoing, right? But Yom Kippur, you know was a time of release and relief and every devout jew longed for the day of yom kippur because they got to have the slate wiped clean their conscience was now clear all those unknown sins all those forgotten sins that had never been atoned for were now going to be under the blood of the animal and god was going to then wipe the slate clean it was on this day, guys, and only on this day, that the high priest and only the high priest could enter the revered holy of holies. Now we've talked about this, okay? You had the tabernacle later the temple. Um, temple was bigger, but the same the same idea. You'd walk. It was two compartments, okay? Let's just use the tabernacle. This is a little simpler. You walk into the as a priest. Now you walk into the first compartment of the tabernacle. And you had the table of showbread to the right, the menorah to the left. Right in front uh, of a curtain was the golden altar of incense. Then you had this curtain, and behind the curtain was the second compartment, the holy of holies, or most holy place. So first compartment, the holy place. Second compartment, the holy of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Now, of course, the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle later the temple although in the days of jeremiah it disappeared many things jeremiah took it and hid it and that the rabbis will tell you we know where it is and when the time is right we'll bring it out and if they do know where it is what they're waiting for is the building of the temple Can you imagine if well the antichrist is going to give them the green light to go ahead and rebuild their temple that's the peace treaty uh, daniel 9:26, 27 Uh, That's where the Antichrist signs his peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And uh, we assume that part of the provision is that the uh, Arabs will let them, or the Muslims, will let them rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. That's a big deal, okay? That's a big deal. And... um, But it was on the day of Yom Kippur that the um, the high priest could enter that second compartment. First compartment, the priests came in and out of all the time. They would a- always burn incense on the golden altar. That was part of their pri- priestly duties. But only once a year could the high priest only enter in be- through the veil into the second compartment. Now you can read about that. We've talked about it he would have to first wash many times many changes of clothing before he could walk into the second and then even then he might have had some unconfessed sin god strike him dead upon entering into the holy of holies that's where they had a rope tied around one ankle and bells sewn in the bottom of his robe so that when he walked around in the holy you don't you couldn't go in there if you heard a thud and, uh, and the bell stopped tinkling. Well, you know, you know, just drag them out by the rope. You didn't go in there and get them. You'd be struck dead, right? Well, we've talked about that, okay? Um, but the priest would stand before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I, I, there's, I'm going somewhere with this. The Ark of the Covenant was made up of two separate pieces, a lower box and a lid. The lower box was made of wood covered inside and out with gold. It measured 3 foot 9 inches uh long by two foot three inches wide two foot three inches high originally god had them place three items in the ark that's the ark of the covenant uh the two tables of the law that god gave to moses written with the finger of god right the ten commandments a golden pot that contained some manna and then aaron's rod that had budded in the rebellion of korah you can read about that on your own And then on top of this box overlaid with gold was a lid of pure gold, solid gold, called the mercy seat. That topped the Ark of the Covenant, the box. On top of the the mercy seat, this lid, okay, you had cherubim. Uh, That cherubim is plural. You had for angel, the highest form of angels. So you had two angels. Okay, cherubim on either end of this lid, um, kneeling down, facing each other with their heads bowed down and their wings outstretched touching almost tip to tip right above the mercy seat. This was the symbolic throne of God in the earth. That was the idea. It was a model of heaven, of course around the throne of God, there are four living creatures who cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? So, but this, this whole thing modeled heaven later, the temple uh, expanded in, in the sense it made it bigger and so on, but the same idea. This was the place where God was symbolically understood to dwell on the earth. Now, again, the lid was called the mercy seat because on the day of atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat. This was intended to atone for all the sins of ignorance committed by God's people on a national level, which then allowed God to show mercy to them as a nation. One additional comment, that's why they called it the mercy seat, right? Uh, The blood was sprinkled on it. God's righteousness was satisfied. Sin had been atoned for. And God can now begin to bless the nation. Because uh, all the unknown, unconfessed sins were now taken care of. One additional comment. If you study the tabernacle and the temple, you will quickly see that there was no seat uh, in either, uh, or uh, you know, no seat or chair in either of these. It wasn't for a church service. This is where the priest offered sacrifices to God to atone for sins. And the reason there was no chair there was because the priest's work was never finished, so he never sat down. There was always another sacrifice to be made for someone's sins. And the reason for that, guys, is as we just said the blood of animals could never take away sin. The blood of goats and sh- bulls and sheep, sheep and so on can only temporarily cover sin until the next time sin was committed. So consequently, the priests never sat down because their work was never done. That is until Jesus, our great high priest, came and offered himself on Calvary's cross for our sins. He was the Lamb of God whose blood didn't just cover a sin, but took sin completely away once and for all time. Which meant the work was done. Didn't he say that from Calvary's cross? It is finished, right? Hebrews 1, verse 3, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm not sure that you really understand that. If you think about this, think about the implication here. If Jesus Christ, our great high priest, after he offered himself for sins, sat down, it means all sin had been taken care of. All sin had been marked, all sin had been now atoned for. The beautiful thing about that is, when I sin and we all will. It's already under the blood of Christ. Didn't John say that in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness? That means that how can you go to hell if all your sins are under the blood and every time you do sin, the blood of Christ continually cleanses you from all unrighteousness because it's all covered? it's all been taken out of the way. Something to think about. When we looked at the tabernacle in our Exodus study, we said that every piece of furniture in it, the menorah, table of showbread, golden altar, everything in and about the tabernacle, later the temple, pointed to Jesus in some way. And guys, this was especially true of the mercy seat. In fact, the words mercy seat... In Hebrews 9, verse 5, and propitiation in 1 John 2, verse 2, and yeah, chapter 4, verse 10, are the same word in the Greek, Hilasmas. same word in the Greek, for, for mercy seat and propitiation, which means that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. He is the place where sin is forgiven the place where God's righteousness is satisfied through the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Turn to Psalm 85. You know, we have talked about this many times. Let me just bring it up again. I just think it's so incredibly exciting and beautiful. And when you read Psalm 85, verse 10, maybe, you know, when you first got saved, you read it, you, you, it, it never it really impacted you. Uh, you know, I know it didn't me until I started to study the word a little more seriously. And then you realize that Psalm 84, excuse me, 85, verse 10 really encapsulates the um, the cosmic problem of the ages about this okay let me read it to you mercy and truth have met together righteousness and peace have kissed what is the psalmist saying here's what he's saying how can god show mercy to fallen man by not sending him to hell and still be true to his word the word which he said the soul that sins shall surely die how can a righteous god ever have or make peace with unrighteous sinners so as to enter into fellowship with them that was the problem of the ages of course both questions were answered in the cross the cross of jesus christ is where you know god's mercy man's forgiveness came together you know where a, where a holy god could have fellowship with fallen men and women the cross our sins were propitiated they were uh, they were uh, uh, atoned for taken out of the way right he himself is the propitiation for our sins well back to first john 4 let's wrap it up verse 11 again beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now, I want to just focus on this one statement because it's the one that we kind of stumble over. No one has seen God at any time. Now, immediately people are going to go, well, wait a minute. Jesus is God. People saw him. A lot of people saw Jesus during his earthly ministry. I mean, didn't John open up this very epistle with these words? 1 John 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the... He's talking about Jesus here. That eternal life that was with the Father, talking about the Son, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, that these things are right to you, that your joy may be full." So, you know, John says, nobody has seen God at any time. And people are like, well, wait a minute. Jesus is God. People saw Jesus. That's right. First of all, John's talking about uh, before the incarnation, primarily. Before the incarnation. Yes, uh, Jesus Christ was deity clothed with humanity. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was transfigured, it was like he turned inside out the glory that was his, As God veiled in humanity, well, the glory was allowed to come through. Okay? Um, So in the incarnation, yes, uh, people saw Jesus. He is God. Um, But God's glory veiled in flesh. But primarily, let me just bring this to a close, but primarily... First of all, no human being has seen God because God is spirit and therefore invisible to human eyes. I'll just read these to you. You can write them down if you want. John 4:24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1:17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's invisible, the invisible God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. Who alone, speaking of God, has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And yet when we read these verses, we think, well, now wait a minute. In the Bible, there are those who spoke to God, talk with God face to face. I don't get that. Remember Genesis 32, verse 30? When Jacob wrestled with the Lord, after it was all over, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Okay. Exodus 33, verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Numbers 12, verse 8. I speak with him, God says about Moses face to face, even plainly I speak with him, not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Guys, these verses are speaking figuratively. Figuratively, of those who talk with God face to face, figuratively. Why do I say figuratively? Because God is spirit, He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a physical body. It has to be figurative, okay? It's the same thing when God, the Bible talks about God having eyes or hands, okay? These are what's called anthropomorphisms, where you're taking human characteristics and ascribing them to God because we can't understand a spirit. We, you know, we understand eyes, we understand seeing, we understand holding. Uh, so we, we liken God, you know he's got hands he's got eyes and so on but he's a spirit those are things that we have concocted to in the and god himself has spoken to us likening himself uh to, to having human features and things so that we can relate to Him. anthropomorphisms but god is spirit okay so once again when god said that people talk with him face to face it was figurative not literal let me show you again We're we're running out of time. Numbers 14, verse 14. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He's talking about the Shekinah glory. So what the Bible is saying is that when Israel looked at the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, in a sense they were seeing God face-to-face, but not literally, all right? It was God, uh, but that was what the Bible was saying, how that they, you know, when God says they they saw God face-to-face, well, they saw the Shekinah glory, all right? Deuteronomy 5, verse 4, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. And Moses is telling them that, look, you remember when I was up on the mount and God gave the law and you saw the fire coming from the top of the mountain. That was God's face in a sense you were looking at. All right. Now, look, John is telling us, I mean, I just want to bring this out because people have asked me throughout the years, I don't get this. Um, people talk with the Lord face to face, but then John says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son was in the bosom of the Father. He's declared him. What does that mean? Well, we're talking about it. John is saying, first of all, that no human being has ever seen God in all of his fullness and glory. Now, we've seen, people have seen Jesus, of course. He was God in human form. His glory veiled with human flesh. They saw God in the form of a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. But nobody ever has looked into the face of God, a human being now, and saw God in all of his fullness. Remember Moses wanted to? Remember he asked the Lord, uh, Exodus 33, verse 18, he said, please show me your glory. Basically, Lord, I want to see you face to face. Then the Lord said, I will make all my goodness... Go, go hide in that cleft of the rock, Moses. I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me you shall stand on the rock, at the cleft of the rock, and so shall be While my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. And while I pass by, then I will take my hand away so that you see my back, my afterglow, Okay, but my face you shall not see. Isn't it going to be something the day we actually see God face to face? And we won't die because we'll have our glorified bodies. Okay. What would it be like to to see the face of God? Again, John's point is that no human being has ever seen God in all of his fullness. Listen to me now. This is, we'll wrap it up. Nobody, John is saying, has ever seen God. Not in his fullness. The closest they can come, John is saying to us, the closest they can come to seeing God. Is by seeing him as he lives in us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. And we manifest him to the people of this world by demonstrating God's love. That's what he's talking about. And we do that by loving them as Jesus loved us, by dying to self and loving others sacrificially. One pastor said this, and I'll close. This is the greatest evidence of God's presence and work among us, love, since no one has seen God at any time. This provides evidence for the presence of God. Some people think the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is power. Some people think the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is popularity. Some people think the greatest evidence of God's presence or work is passionate feelings. But the greatest evidence of God's presence and work is love. Where God is present and working, there will be love. Sometimes Jesus seemed weak and lacking in power, but he always was full of love. Sometimes Jesus wasn't popular at all, but he was always full of love. Sometimes Jesus didn't inspire passionate feelings in people at all, but he was always full of love. Love was the constant, greatest evidence of the presence and work of God in Jesus Christ was love, end quote. So may God give us grace. This is what the people of this world need. They need to see God, and they will only see God if we show them God's love. This is not something we can do. The love has to come from God, but even the grace to demonstrate God's love has to come from his ability giving us the grace to, to, to act uh, in a way that properly represents him to the people of this world. May God give us grace to demonstrate his agape love. That is the most powerful force in the world to bring people to Christ. The Holy Spirit working through believers by loving them through us. The most powerful force in the world to save people. And we have the ability to, we have the um, We have the ability to be an instrument of God's love if we want it, if we will die to self. So John will continue. We'll continue next time. Father, we thank you for your great love toward us. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and you have come to live inside of us through your Holy Spirit. And you have filled us with your love. Father, please give us grace now to demonstrate that love to those around us. Give us grace to die to self, that your agape love can come flowing through us. Father, we, just, we, we desperately want to be instruments of your love. That's how people are going to be saved, touched. Give us grace, Lord, to demonstrate your agape love. We just thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word.